Grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God our Father, through His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The Word of God that calls for our attention this morning comes to us from the Old Testament reading from Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is He, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So far our text. We are coming to the end of the road, the long road of Lent. As the prophet Amos has reminded us again and again, the lion is ready to roar. That's true in 2021. That was true in 30 AD as Jesus rode into Jerusalem with the shouts of Hosanna. It was true all the way back in the late 6th century before Christ, as Zechariah is seeing his vision of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And even two centuries before that, as Amos has tried to prepare us for the lion to roar. Now, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, he's not coming in by himself. He's gathered around by a throng, a great multitude of pilgrims who were already joyful. They were joyful because they were coming to Jerusalem, the holy city, to the temple, the place where Yahweh has made His name to dwell. For many of them, this was a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And they were nearing the end of their journey as well. You see, they didn't have the luxury that you and I enjoy of being able to come to the house of the Lord and celebrate our salvation every week. Their worship centered around the temple in Jerusalem, a place where many Jews didn't live. So yes, they were rejoicing and shouting. And then they find out that Jesus of Nazareth is traveling with them. And when that news ripples through the ranks of pilgrims, it's like everything shook. Something great. No, something wonderful was happening on this day. And they got to be a part of it. So yes, they rejoiced and shouted more because they could sense that history was happening on that day. And they got to be a part of it. The lion was ready to roar in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem had been waiting in in expectation and anticipation. The king was finally coming. Creation seemed to know it for certain. Some guessed that it was happening. Many didn't know what to think. And then there's still the others who flat out refused to believe that any of it was going to happen. Jerusalem, the daughter of Zion, had been waiting for centuries. Centuries it had lain in various states of distress and disorder waiting for the promised son of David to reclaim the throne. It had been 600 years since Zedekiah was led into Babylon as the last of the kings in the line of David. Since then, no descendant of David has held royal power in Jerusalem. 600 years is a long time. In Luke's account of Palm Sunday, some of the Pharisees demanded 
that Jesus rebuke his disciples and tell everybody to be quiet. He answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. It was a big day for Jerusalem. The king was coming. The heavens and the earth knew it. But the people, the people were a different story. Some of the pilgrims spurred on by the reports of Lazarus' resurrection just a few days before were quick to make this pilgrimage something special, something more fitting, a royal coronation. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This Jesus had to be the long-awaited King of Israel. If he could bring people back from the dead, what couldn't he do? What a great king they would have. What a great kingdom they would have where nobody stayed dead. Many of the pilgrims weren't sure what was going on. John even puts the disciples in this group. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. They especially weren't sure What was going on with Jesus when he starts making a whip and chasing out the money changers and the the livestock salesmen out of the temple? For most people, they were just stirred up in the emotion of the moment. Only later would they begin to understand. Others, especially the Pharisees, flat out refused to believe that Jesus could be this king. After all, he was Jesus of Nazareth. The promised king was supposed to come from Bethlehem, the city where David had been born. This guy had to be an imposter. There was no way you could be God's anointed man and not fill out the most basic of the promises in Scripture. Just could not happen. And the roar of the crowds just hardened their hearts even more. Some tried to get Jesus to stop everything. Others just cried out in anxiety, You see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Some of them figured this ruckus would incite a riot that would bring the Romans in to destroy the city. Or even worse, that maybe God might wipe the city out because of this man. And they wouldn't let that happen. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Jesus was making this happen in their eyes. The righteous and saving king was coming into his kingdom. The Pharisees and the scribes didn't want this to happen. They didn't like Jesus' righteousness. They thought they were more righteous than him. They also weren't looking for the salvation he offers. The pilgrims, on the other hand, were seeking salvation. They were shouting, Hosanna, which means, save us now. But they weren't looking for salvation from their sin. They were looking for salvation from the Romans, from all those who were oppressing them. But they couldn't see the real oppressor. They couldn't see the real problem. They could only see what was right in front of their eyes. Today, people are no different. 
They want no salvation from their sins. They just want salvation from the oppression that they feel that they have. People don't want someone else's righteousness. People want to make and pursue their own righteousness. People want to believe that they're good enough for God. And if they aren't good enough for God, well then God just isn't good enough for them. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem as a righteous and saving king. A king who comes in offering what people don't want. But he still offers it. And Jesus comes here into our Savior Lutheran Church as a righteous and saving king. Do we want what he offers? We absolutely should. But his gifts often come hidden in obscure places and circumstances. He brings righteousness and salvation through suffering and death. Those shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. We're hoping for a geographical kingdom of Israel. They take this idea and cause the common pilgrimage into Jerusalem to become a massive coronation march. Some thought that Jesus was really finally going to show that he is the son of David and was going to take his throne and sit instead of his father David. But Jesus doesn't take his throne on Palm Sunday. Instead, he begins a week of deep teaching for his disciples and his opponents, telling parables and answering questions, constantly bombarded with desires for him to prove himself as the king of Israel, as the son of David. Through it all, Jesus proves himself to be exactly what God declared in the Scriptures. Unfortunately, what God declared in the Scriptures and what people were expecting and what they had been taught were two different things. Jesus did not come to be a military king. He did not come to establish a political ruler agenda. He came to bring righteousness and salvation, gifts that bring peace to his people. It isn't hard to understand Israel's desire for Jesus to be a military king. After all, Zechariah describes his reign in military terms that regular people understand. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. But people don't understand God's peace. It's not a political peace. It's not a cessation of hostilities between nations. It's a cessation of hostilities between us and God. A restoration of the way God created the world. Bringing about a world where there is no conflict, no strife. A world brought together through His Word. He shall speak peace. Not just to the nations, but more importantly, to human hearts. And that is the most important reason for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem. Peace between nations doesn't mean all that much, because that peace is conditional. One side or the other can easily betray the other side and break the peace. 
But peace between you and God is a different thing. Yes, your side is still conditional. Your sinful flesh wants to discredit the peace treaty. Your sinful nature wants to create its own peace treaty with God on its terms. The problem with your peace treaty? The terms keep changing. And we see that in our world today. As we can't keep up with all the changes that are constantly happening. God's peace is unconditional. But there is one condition to the treaty. Jesus has to die for God to declare peace. So Jesus rides into Jerusalem to fulfill God's side of the treaty. In faith, we say, ride on, King Jesus. And lowly pomp, ride on to die. But Jesus' death was no ordinary death. He died to give life. He had earlier said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That abundant life only comes through his death. A death that begins his triumphs over captive death and conquered sin. With Jesus' death, there is finally a sufficient sacrifice for the sin of the world. There is a sufficient offering to appease God so that he can declare peace with his creation. And he grants this peace because of the blood of the covenant. The blood shed on the cross that seals the covenant between us and the true king of Israel, who, yes, was riding into Jerusalem, but not to do the things that many people thought. He came to bring peace. That peace he gives to you as his blood is poured out on you in your baptism. It is poured out in you in the Lord's Supper. God said through Zechariah, Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Imagine yourself standing at the bottom of a pit. Above you is a shaft that leads to escape and safety. But it's so far up. And the sides of the shaft just crumble under your fingertips as you try to climb up. You can't get out by yourself. You must be rescued from the top. So Jesus rides into Jerusalem to rescue you from the bottom of the pit that sin and death have left you in. He rides into Jerusalem to rescue you and me and the whole world through the blood He sheds on the cross. Throughout Scripture, the blood of the covenant is the bond that links God with His people. Symbolized in the blood of bulls and goats in the Old Covenant, it comes to fulfillment in Jesus' blood. Blood coming into Jerusalem in Jesus' veins. Blood that would four days later be given to His disciples for the forgiveness of their sins. The next day it would be shed on the cross to bind them forever with Him. His blood of the covenant that has been so long, so longed for. His blood rescues you, a prisoner at the bottom of the waterless pit. He lets down His blood like a scarlet cord to lift you up out of the pit. And as He lifts you out, He gives you abundant blessings because He brings you to ride alongside Him. 
As he lifts you out, he says, Today I declare I will restore to you double. God's peace is counted as double the affliction we have suffered. As King Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he doubles the blessings for those who ride with him. And you ride with him. In this most holy week, we see him ride into Jerusalem, onto the cross, through the grave, and into his glorious kingdom. And you go on this ride with him. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. As we hear at many funerals, we have been buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You have ridden with Jesus into Jerusalem, onto the cross, through the grave, and into His glorious kingdom. What greater blessing could you ask for as a double restoration for your sin? In this most holy week, you celebrate your ride with Jesus through this whole week, into the holy city, into his sanctuary, onto the cross, through the grave, and into his glorious kingdom. You have been baptized. You have been buried and raised with him as he took your place. You shout your hosannas alongside the pilgrims, not looking for salvation from oppression. You shout hosanna because you have been saved from your sin. You have been freed from the devil's oppression. You are free not only to ride with Jesus into his death, you ride with him into his heavenly kingdom. The road through Lent is almost at its end. But we can faithfully say, ride on, King Jesus, because his road goes on to eternity. And we say it with joy, because we ride along with him. Amen.